maybe if you think of a thing long enough and you believe in it, maybe it becomes real. Maybe all the things we were afraid of as kids, you know, all the monsters like Frankenstein, huh? Wolfman, mummy. Welcome to Now Playing's Night Shift Collection Series. It's gonna turn your life around, Dick. I guarantee it. Continuing the Stephen King movie retrospective, your hosts Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob will be watching and reviewing Graveyard Shift. We're going to hell. Cat's Eye. I, uh, I don't think you got the guts. I just don't think you got the guts. And the Night Shift Collection short films, The Woman in the Room, The Boogeyman, and Disciples of the Crow. I was responsible for the deaths of my children. You see, they were murdered. These podcasts will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. All fiddly sticks. Listener discretion is advised. Big hey, boss, ain't you gonna turn the sound up? Today... We're discussing three short films. The Woman in the Room, starring Michael Cornelson, Dee Croxton, and Brian Libby, directed by Frank Darabont. The Boogeyman, starring Michael Reed and Burt Linder, directed by Jeffrey C. Shiro. And Disciples of the Crow, starring Elise Lester, Gabriel Fulce, and Stephen Young, directed by John Woodward, but all based on stories from Stephen King's Night Shift collection. I'm Arnie, the fornicating, corn-defiling co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is the host with Freud in one hand and his dick in the other, Jacob. <laughs> it's going to serve you well here, now that we're diving into Stephen King again. <laughs> Having my dick in my hand? Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> they get a little raunchy, particularly this leg of Stephen King. Now, we talked for a long time about what we'd like to do a Stephen King retrospective, the sticking point, for me anyway, was always, I don't want to cover that night shift shit. Well, guess what, guys? <laughs> this is what 2014 is going to be all about. We're starting right here, 22 movies adapting 10 short stories from his night shift collection. Indeed, it's amazing the longevity night shift has had for a book that primarily just collected stuff that was published in skin mags over the course of the 70s. <laughs> it was essentially a cash-in. Oh, that guy actually has become somebody? He wrote Carrie, Salem's Lot, and Shining? Well, let's find out what else he wrote and stick it in a book. Actually, a little bit different. King, being a new author, had been grabbed by the balls by his contract with Doubleday. He had to put out a book a year, and he needed more time for The Stand. And so Doubleday was appeased barely by the thought of collecting some of his old stuff and putting it out if he would agree to write four new short stories and an intro. And they didn't want to do it. It had a very limited initial run. They thought, nobody's going to buy this. And it sold like hotcakes and has spawned 22 films. I definitely read some of them. I remember having that 
paperback, uh, tattered, and the, the one with the hand with the eyes on it and the bandages. I definitely, this was one of the Stephen Kings that I enjoyed. It was one of the books I think about when I think about my early love for King. It comes from these stories. But my disdain for the Stephen King movies largely has to do with the ones that have been adapted from short stories. I really do feel like if I give a le- green arrows in this leg of the Stephen King, it, they'll be few and far between. I have no doubt. Well, Keep in mind that a lot of these are very short stories. I'm reviewing them over at booksandnachos.com. You can hear my reviews. And in some cases, these are like novellas. And I definitely say that about Jerusalem's Lot, the pseudo-prequel to Salem's Lot that's in there. But by and large, these are short stories that had to fit literally in four pages between pictures of naked women. And they're really small in scope. So how do you take those and blow them up into movies? You do one of two things. Either you make it short or an anthology, which has been done, and we're going to be covering some of those, or you completely embellish the hell out of it, and it ends up resembling nothing like the original story, which we'll be seeing with, say, The Lawnmower Man and some of the later Children of the Corn films. Yes, exactly. What, he didn't have nine separate Short stories for Children of the Corn? Is that what you're telling me? (laughs) No sequels. And he didn't know about virtual reality in 1978 when The Lawnmower Man was put in the book. Yeah, I have gone back and I have read all of those short stories again. And I don't know if I ever read Lawnmower Man, the original, but wow. Yeah, not like the movie. I can definitely say that up front. There are stories and adaptations that are faithful. And then there are ones that are Lawnmower Man and, uh, yeah, that got sued for using Stephen King's name. I, of course, have seen almost every movie we're going to be discussing out of these 22 coming in as the Stephen King fan. There might be a couple Children of the Corns I'm seeing for the first time, and I haven't seen any Manglers, I will say that. <laughs> but... I am rereading all of these short stories, having read them, yeah, back in junior high with that same paperback with the bandaged hand and revisiting the movies that I'm not dreading as much as you are, Stuart, but mainly because I can sometimes enjoy fun trash. Yeah, trash. I think that's what's to emphasize. If I like them, it'll be because I like the spirit of the thing. It's fun. I don't know that there's any great movies. Up to this point, it's worth pointing out, everyone that has handled Stephen King material has been A-lister, or at least B-lister. I mean, you've had Brian De Palma, you've had Stanley Kubrick, you've had Toby Hooper. Well, now, particularly tonight, we're going to be talking about people that, in many cases, never worked again. Amateurs. Student films. That's how I'm going to look at this entry point here. The Night Shift Collection. We're talking about people that were just out of college trying to make a name for themselves and got the rights to make Stephen King stories. Yeah, Stephen King, even in his early years after The Shining with Night Shift, wanted to be a friend to up-and-coming creative types, and he would get a lot of requests to adapt his works into film. And he created a concept that his accountants and lawyers hate called the Dollar Baby, where any of his short stories he will sell the non-exclusive rights to to a filmmaker for the princely sum of $1. But this comes with a hell of a lot of caveats. Not only do you have to give Stephen King a copy of your film if it gets finished, you can never profit from it. You can't do anything other than a festival showing in person. You can't put it on the internet. You can't distribute it. It is just there. Can't put it on the internet. Well, uh, I don't know how I saw what I saw. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, you'd be surprised, though, because I did try to research. There have been a lot of dollar babies made, and you can find some trailers for them out there, but you can't find these movies because if you do, King will revoke your rights and possibly sue you. I don't know. But the ones we're talking about tonight, these are strange. These are like the dollar babies that graduated and they had to be renegotiated two dollar babies so that they could actually find release they were all made as student films but the way we picked the ones we picked these were all officially released albeit direct to vhs yeah i think there's a couple reasons why it's these three women in the room the boogeyman disciples of the crow I mean, they were all commercially released, packaged as being part of the Night Shift collection. So what better way to kick off Night Shift than talking about these Night Shift collections? They're also the very first adaptations of any kind from Night Shift to make it to the screen. I mean, The Boogeyman, Disciples of the Crow, Woman in the Room all came out before Children of the Corn, which is the first official real Night Shift feature. Plus, I also think that there's a special aura around the woman in the room because it actually features someone who would go on to make uh, legitimate might be one word you'd use or at least more established adaptations of King in the future. We're going to be talking a lot about Frank Darabont as we get through the Stephen King movies. Yeah, he directed The Shawshank Redemption, which while polarizing is perhaps the most universally well-loved Stephen King adaptation. Yeah, it's always at the top of the IMDb chart, and I know many people that tell me it's their favorite movie. I think we might get there next year. I don't know, but this year we're staying focused on Night Shift. It's nice to know that there's somebody that's going to come out of all these dollar babies who kind of graduates and, yeah, is going to get another shot and take a crack at it. And honestly, if Darabont wasn't involved with this... I don't think we'd be doing it. We haven't really done short films. We've never done student films. We kind of have to adjust our grading scale for those a little bit. Yeah, for our listeners, don't go back and say, well, there's this and that. No, this is one-time exception. This is not going to be a new rule. At least I hope it's not. No, if Frank Darabont wasn't involved, I don't think I would have gone to Amazon's used sellers to get these old, moldy, dusty VHSs, and once again, break out the VHS player to see these. Darabont's name is why we're doing this podcast. Otherwise, all of these, we just say, hey, yeah, they're on YouTube somewhere. Well, then I guess we should start there. I think the best way to handle this is maybe plot summaries individually. And this is the most illustrious. This is the most famous one of all the dollar babies. It's widely quoted that this is Stephen King's favorite. Uh, let's kick it off with Frank Darabont's Woman in the Room. Johnny is a defense attorney and a good son to a 60-year-old mother who is dying slowly of painful abdominal cancer. And being a good son, Johnny has to make a choice of helping his mother overdose on painkillers, ending her torment, or watching her wither away in agony. He obliquely consults one of his clients, a hitman who's up for the death sentence, on what it's like to kill someone, and the hitman discusses his only mercy kill of one of his fellow troops who served with him in Nam. With this, Johnny goes to his mother's bedside and starts to feed her the pills. She willingly eats them, putting her fingerprints on the bottle, alleviating Johnny of guilt, at least in the eyes of the law. And Johnny leaves as his mother goes to sleep for the last time, and credits roll. Now, I saw this movie. In fact, I saw 
all of the movies we're discussing tonight way back in 1990. I don't have this experience anymore, mostly because I don't go to video stores anymore, but if I were to, I'm always hard target searching. I miss being 14 years old and going to a video store and going, what to rent? There's a box that has Stephen King's name on the cover. I'm going <laughs> to rent this. I saw that box, but I had a different reaction. I I don't know at what age I was. I think it was the fact that the bigger the box, the less often it was good. I, there was a strange marketing with that video box. I remember it was oversized. It was like a shoe box. <laughs> and on one side, it was this blonde woman, kind of almost like a ghost or something, coming, literally coming through a doorway, not walking through a doorway, coming through the wood of a closed doorway. And when you flipped it over, there was some kind of monster. I presume it was the Boogeyman, the other movie on the box, also coming through that doorway. I, I walked through the outdoorway and I wasn't holding this rental. I never had have seen these but i remember the art well imagine my surprise being a 14 year old horror hound taking home <laughs> the woman in the room thinking she, the she doesn't even look like the woman on the box okay it's like a hot blonde on the box it's a six-year-old like incapacitated cancer-ridden woman in the movie <laughs> yeah already you weren't down for a melodramatic character study at 14 she does have her leg splayed open, but uh, that's about <laughs> as hot as it gets. That's an, actually, I didn't see that box cover. The box cover at mine just had the boogeyman on the front, so I wasn't expecting hot blondes. You needed to turn it around, yeah. <laughs> and I also wasn't expecting a character study on euthanasia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been probably, and, and still, I'm going to put it out there now. This feels very much... Unlike when you say Stephen King, I think of certain parameters here, and they've all been in all of the adaptations, even the bastardized ones that we've had up to this point. This feels the most unking-like of any Stephen King adaptation we've covered so far. And I dare say the same goes for the short story itself. You can hear my thoughts on books and nachos, but this to me is King writing with a totally different impulse than he normally was at that time. It's a more humanist king, a king dealing with the death of his own mother to cervical cancer not long before. Aha. Uh -huh. I had a feeling. I knew nothing historically about this story, but I'm like, this feels like him working through something. A lot of King, there's personal elements to that. You can feel that he's putting himself in the story. I had to believe that this was a personal story. Otherwise, why not do it? I thought for sure the woman was going to turn into a to a monster at some point, but no, that, that really doesn't happen. Well, maybe briefly. We'll discuss it. <laughs> but, but by and large, if you're looking for that Stephen King, the master of horror Stephen King, already, not recognized recommend for women in the room that's not what's being done here yeah you know i'm familiar with i've read shawshank redemption or rita hayworth and the shawshank redemption i knew king had stuff where it wasn't your typical horror it wasn't supernatural i was surprised though to see something come this early in his career because i just always assumed like that was you know he got bored of writing about ghosts and demons and that and so he ventured off and did something else but no here it is the something that's not your typical horror it's the most unremarkable story, not the worst, but the one that leaves the, the least impact for me throughout all of Night Shift. I remembered all of the stories as I reread them, the ones that I had, but this one, I don't know if I even I finished reading the short story. I, it just, I had no memory of it. And again, I think it was because it was selling something that I, I wasn't looking to buy. I, they, they stuck it in right at the end. I think it was written specifically for Night Shift, right? This isn't a, an original for the anthology. It was not previously published? 
Right. It had not been published before. I'm not quite sure when it was written. King's mother died in about 74. And given that a lot of this was recycled material, it it was previously unpublished. Not sure exactly when it was written, though. Right. To the audience at large, this would have been a brand new story if you bought this book hot off the shelf in 1978. That said, it was one of the ones that I remembered most coming back so many years later because it was so different. When I went back to reread these, I couldn't exactly remember what Gray Matter or Strawberry Spring was about. But I knew the woman in the room because, again, so off the wall when I'm a teenager to be reading a story from Stephen King about euthanasia and the death of a mother and a story that I come from a family with a medical background. It was a story that clicked with me as a youth. So I did remember that one. So the experience, I guess, just differs from person to person on that. And I think it makes sense that Frank Darabont would gravitate towards this story as well. I mean, keep in mind, the ones he's going to adapt are not the monster ones, by and large. Yes, he did The Mist, but that came much later. Shawshank and Green Mile are the ones he did, and I dare say you can see elements of that kind of prison melodrama here even in this little one. I mean, I think it would be really impressive. It's probably what helped him create that relationship with Stephen King, is that, hey, I want to adapt one of your stories, and unlike everybody else, I don't want to do the one with the monster at the end. I want to do the one that's personal, that's that's drama, that doesn't hide behind genre and the supernatural. Darabont is, at the time of making this, about 20 years old, finished high school and was struggling through odd jobs. I don't think he had even gone to college. And he basically hit up some family and friends. And I think it took about three years. He asked Stephen King in 1980. And by 1983, he finished this movie for the cost of about $30,000. And it was a finalist for an Academy Award for short film. Uh, yeah, eventually. He claims that it came in ninth. I don't know how he knows that. It was not one of the official five nominees, but there must be some kind of short list, and he made several cuts before it was cut out. It was a lauded film. And again, I, it is Stephen King's favorite of all of the short Dollar Babies adapted. To this day, Stephen King still says this is the best one. I'll say that when the movie kicks off, I was impressed with the overall look and feel of this movie. It starts with this very basic but classical score that is recorded for the movie and some tracking shots of Johnny in his mother's house looking through the medicine cabinet. I mean, it doesn't feel like what comes to mind when I think back to the films I would watch some of my fellow students make when I was in college. Really? I, I will say, I'm just going to put it out there, I was a TA for many a film class, and I actually think that this is a certain type. Everyone needs to make this film. At some point, a young filmmaker will make this film, and I've seen it many different ways. I, I, it's got its own phylum. I classify it as my dead loved one <laughs> film. And, it, you know, it can be a roommate. I've seen it with a, starring a dog. I've seen it starring moms, dads, brothers, what have you. But I do feel stories about a young person dealing with loss. Very, very common. And uh, it's all about how you do it here. I will say this. On a technical level, this is very clearly a graduate student film. This is not someone that just picked up a camera. And I want to celebrate, if nothing else about this movie, the cinematographer would definitely go on. Not only does Frank Darabont go on and have a career, but Juan Ruiz and Chia had a very good career and still shooting films to this day. Really nice looking films. Uh, you, you can tell. You can tell even here on minimal budget, shot over 
years, this film has a polish that I don't see typically in most student films. And that's exactly what I'm talking about, is merely the quality of the shots, the quality of the score that comes into this. I mean, when we start contrasting to the later films in this, this is definitely a cut above what I had seen other students do and what I see in this group. Yeah, I, I didn't go to film school, but there is a familiarity with this story, the the moral dilemma here. It's It feels like something I've read about or seen hundreds of times, but yeah, it all comes down to the technical aspects for me. I, I don't think the acting's the best here, but yeah, I love that synth score that just, I don't know, it kind of reminds me of Carpenter, and I, I always loved his scores. <laughs> John he, Carpenter or Karen Carpenter? John Carpenter. I got a little Karen Carpenter myself with the flute. But no, yeah, the shots, I, you know, some of the shots that stick out to me when you have Johnny, you know, sitting at his table smoking, calling his brother saying, why aren't you visiting mom? Just that those long shots that kind of pull in there, you know, yes, it's obviously a student film, but it feels like a student that's getting an A in the class. <laughs> Right. And they're building a mystery. I, I think that what you want to do is you want to pull people in and you're wondering what's going on at the beginning. We we see that he's in a house. It's clearly a, a, a woman's house, if not an old woman's house. When we look at all the things that are around there, I'm thinking about macrame and grandma. And it does not suit the kind of living place that the main character, the person that we're looking at, would live in. He's rifling through the bathroom, looking at all of these pills. By the time he shows up, by the time he's in the hospital room, I think I've already guessed the conflict. I think seeing him deal with all those pills and the anxiety that this amateur actor is clearly putting out there, he's going to have to make a choice about putting this woman down. And that was my memory coming in, was that I was a little bit shocked in the opening credits when they start talking about, and this person plays the prisoner. I'm like, wait, there's more than two actors in this? All I remembered was the son sitting by his mother's bedside. That was my entire memory. I, so I can't say that I wasn't expecting it, but by the same token, you call him an amateur actor. I think he's doing above average. He's really selling me on the nervousness in, in obvious kinds of ways. Yeah, without making it sound ugly, but the, what you expect from community theater. I mean, we all understand what kind of motions and expressions convey fear or laughter or nervousness or whatever. I don't feel like he's got a new spin on that. I feel like there, it's pretty much, yeah, you know, he's tweaking his glasses, he's wringing his hands, he's licking his, you know, it's universally understood body language to tell us this man's got a choice to make. And it's a good conflict for a short film. Yeah, by amateur, I, I'm not saying that it's bad necessarily, but like you said, Stuart, it doesn't detract from me. It's just something that does stick out, and again, that's to be expected with these student films. Yeah, no, to no discredit of what we're reviewing here, it is it is what it is, and certainly much better than when you have to go and grab you know, your sister or your best friend's mate that you never met before. I've definitely been in circumstances where you know, you're making films with people that don't have any acting training. I think these people do. I think that all of them have worked in television, and some of them would even go on and continue to work with Frank Darabont in his later King movies. And I'll even say it's more engaging than, I don't know, Bruce Willis in that last Die Hard film he did. I mean... <laughs> well, I took a shit that was more engaging than Bruce Willis in that last <laughs> Die Hard film. I pretend that there was no last Die Hard film, but to each their own. But in addition to 
being better than the average student film because I've also been in those where you just grab your buddy and say, now you are this person. It also seems better to me than when they do hit the theater department and find those stage actors who are still playing to the back row on the camera, too. There was a subtleness to his performance, and I believed his line delivery. At no point did he come off as inauthentic. Of the three main actors in this, I will give all of my kudos. You gotta look up his name. To this man <laughs> whose name I don't know. <laughs> Michael Cornelison. To Michael Cornelison. Really? He's not my favorite here. I actually, I like the other guy a little bit more. We're getting to him in just a second. But before we do, I just want to put it out there. I think that the problem for me in buying into this is we're expected to believe that this woman is in extreme agony and there's no hope for curing her cancer. They've done a procedure to try and take away her pain, but they cannot help her get better. And so he's come to see if that pain is gone. What he's learning is that she still has the pain and is he going to be the one to take it away because presumably the doctors are not. The brother is not going to get involved. No one else is going to make the decision to take and end her life prematurely. I mean, he does give her a cigarette in the hospital. Well, that's just a sign to me to saying <laughs> that there's no hope. He's like, well, if she can smoke, then they're not concerned about curing her cancer. They're just trying to relieve her pain. Hospitals were very different in 1980, Stuart. <laughs> yes, I know. It's true. True enough. I, I also have people in my family that were working in hospitals at that time. And uh, yes, it is a workplace that has changed. At this point, if this story were to be updated, she'd be in hospice. There's no hospital that would have this woman for an extended period in the room. She'd be the woman being shuttled down the hall to go <laughs> somewhere else because the HMO won't pay for it. And I did do a little bit of research in this procedure that they did on her, this Chorodotomy is a real procedure for cancer patients who are terminal and in endless pain where they try to rupture part of the brain to sever the nerves that feel pain. You also lose control of your body and basically are paralyzed if they do this. But it's a way to try to alleviate the pain that does not always work and can have the result of feeling like there's burning acid under your flesh. The problem for me is this actress, her name is Dee Croxton, she doesn't look like she's that far gone. I'm not saying she's not trying, I mean, she's doing a performance, but without the makeup effects, without really getting a look, I think the big difference for me between the short story and this movie is, in the short story, I could imagine the horror of this man looking at the mother that he knew from childhood with all of her vitality gone. Here, this looks like a woman that's lying in bed. Yeah, I mean, this these are short films. I, I think you have to be very judicious with what information you put in there. Maybe they didn't put the right information, because, you know, you get this idea that she's in pain and that they did some kind of operation, but you don't really know what happened until later on where Johnny's talking to a prisoner, and you get all this exposition about what actually happened. I, I think, again, you got to really, really focus with a short film, and yeah, there there's definitely better ways it could have been written to create a better character here. Instead, she comes off as, you know, grandma's in the bed and she's sick. Right. And maybe that's all it needs to be. I mean, it's it, certainly a conflict, but the horror, again, I go back to Stephen King and anxiety and fear. In that story, it has a level of horror, and it comes from watching something you love dying before your eyes. Here, I feel like the conflict's more about courage. Do I have the guts to do this? Not, can I 
face what my mother's become. But by the same token, I think there's also the question of does she want to and how much is she aware? Like he walks in, he talks to her, she closes her eyes for a few seconds, doesn't know he's there. Yes, the actress is giving a passable line reading. She's not selling me that she's lost her memory, she's lost her mind, and she's withering away. She's passable in this part. But to me, the big question is, is it right to kill your mother? And that's what I got out of this performance he's giving is, how much will she even understand? Is this the right thing to do? In the end, it's murder, which is why he consults his client. Apparently, Johnny is a defense attorney. This is all added for the this film. Right. Darabont. I, I want to say it's kind of maybe... No, well, it hadn't been published yet. I was like, maybe he was inspired by Shawshank by having someone on death row. But no, that story has not been published by the time he's written and produced this movie. He somehow knew that he wanted a Stephen King story to tell uh, about prison life. And he's going to stick it in here in a totally original subplot. And here he goes to a prison to talk to this prisoner who is a Vietnam vet turned professional hitman, but not a very good one because he got caught and is likely going to be given the death sentence. But despite the fact that I'd be getting a new lawyer if my own lawyer says there's absolutely no hope for your case, but wear this tie anyway. <laughs> it's a terrible tie. I agree. We just want to amuse the judge while he sentences you to death. It isn't very optimistic here, but you know what? I actually like this part of it. It is the non-king part of the story, but I think what it allows, because I have seen a lot of these movies, and usually, you know, we'll say it's the girlfriend movie. My girlfriend's dead, and what happens at this point in the story is we get the flashbacks, we get the montage, all the things that she used to be, and run around on the beach and all of that stuff, I think it's more interesting that he's essentially written a conversation with death. Here is a character that represents death. It's unrepentant, it's inevitable, and he's kind of chill with it. And so he's going to give the guy the perspective he needs. I think this is where he gets the confidence to give her the pills. I mean, it, there'll be a few more scenes after this, but my sense is the turning point happens here in this dialogue between the prisoner. Yeah, I mean, he talks about the only time he ever killed someone who meant something to him, his friend who had his legs blown off and was in constant pain, had the same procedure. And what the prisoner says, I think this is the line that turns Johnny's mind is, he saved my life once, I owed him. You know, the killing was repaying the favor. And now this is the mother who gave him life and Johnny owes her. Right. I wish they lingered more. I do wish that there was maybe some more subtlety here, but I kind of like this actor that's doing this. He's my personal favorite of the prisoners. He's, he doesn't quite fit in with the melodrama of what's going on, but I like that he's kind of aloof. I like the fact that he's going up the river and it doesn't seem to bother him. It feels like death itself. Again, it feels... <laughs> what you take as performance, I take as inability to emote. No, no, I, I definitely think that the non-emotional performance is what they were looking for here. I, I They could have gone scary. They could have gone Hannibal Lecter. They could have done that, I suppose. I'm glad they went with this impulse. It's being told to him in a way that the character will be able to hear it. You know, if it were scary, he would just be wondering why he spends all his time representing people like this. No, no, I don't think he should be scary. But I think when he's talking about the one time it was shitty to kill somebody, the one time it really hurt him, we should be getting some something different in the line reading. I think this guy has one line reading, and while that may work to be aloof about most of the killings, it 
really doesn't work when he's supposed to be touching. No, I, I think it works being aloof, and even when it means something, it wasn't touching. I mean, that would give you courage. Okay, maybe I could kill my mom, and it just won't mean anything to me. I'll just be able to move on and be aloof like this guy. I, I, I think that is actually effective, and I, I like that he's he does seem unrepentant. He, even yeah. when he was sad about killing someone, with all these people he's killed, he seems unrepentant, and yeah, yeah I think you're right, Stuart. I never thought of this as a conversation between Johnny and Death, but but it really is. And this is what, you know, I think gives him the courage. We saw him take pills earlier in the film and he just couldn't do it. And well, he's going to be able to do it after this. Right. I wouldn't buy it if it were a killer with a heart of gold. And we wouldn't believe if he was crying about how he killed this one man because he really wanted to. And the hundreds of other times it was just, you know, I, I think it's how you would reflect. If you had had a lifetime of killing people, it comes to him as a distant, hazy memory, not as an overwhelming tragedy. And, and something that's so melodramatic, I, I, I didn't need more added on with this guy breaking down in tears. <laughs> but we do get more. We get a dream sequence right after this. Now, this is always in my dead loved one student movie. Always. There's always a dream sequence. Uh, it doesn't always involve corpses and zombies, <laughs> but it's always here. I feel like an angel or something. There's always some transparency between the dead and the living. And Darabont said he threw this in to have a Stephen King moment because he knew people who came for King would want a ghost, would want a corpse. And so this was added in to give the scares that certainly aren't in the rest of it. I don't think it's that scary either. In fact, I found myself very much scratching my head and cocking it a little to the side like a listless dog <laughs> trying to figure out exactly what this scene was doing. You know, I, I appreciate the restraint here because I, I see this wheelchair, you know, this wrapped up Biden in a wheelchair. It starts, you know, moving on its own, chasing Johnny. I'm like, oh. He's going to get chased by a wheelchair. This is going to be ridiculous. No, it's very short. You don't get a whole lot of that. Most of it's him walking around in this fever dream state. And I like the synth music going on at this point. I, You know, you get the creepy corpse face. This felt like a Stephen King moment to me. And you know what? This is kind of what I was expecting after all this melodrama. Okay, here's the scares. Here's the horror. Here's the ghosts and the monsters. I didn't mind it. It felt a little uh, Lynchian to me. I, and I like that. I think it was a moment of opportunity. It's worth pointing out that at this point in the filming, Darabont is a production assistant for horror movies. And he actually was working on this Linda Blair movie called Hell Night. And they had this dummy lying around. So had he not been on Hell Night, we probably wouldn't have had this moment. But because he does, that's not the actress that's dressed up in the wheelchair. That is a ghoul from Hell Night uh, that he sticks in the wheelchair over there at that jump moment. I wish that the dream had been something to push Johnny over the edge. But we all thought he'd made his decision after meeting with the prisoner. This dream of being followed by his mother's wrapped corpse... It elongates things. It's a nice, weird moment. I honestly wish it had come before the meeting with the prisoner. Yeah, I yes, totally agree. that's what they should have done. Uh, my mom is dying. I go home and have a horrifying dream, and then this man gives me clarity. Makes a lot more sense than this man gives me clarity, and then I have a dream and I don't know what to do anymore. Because we're wondering, well, then what's going to make him finally make that decision when he goes back? And there is no other thing that happens. There's no other 
transpirance of I mean, he has her do a like a arm test to see how much movement she has uh, taking something out of her purse but the decision has already been made when he returns to this hospital and i think yeah with some better choices in editing it, it would lead into this more you know but yeah he does do this arm test like he brings her purse and can you reach in i i like that because okay i figured at some point he's just gonna start popping pills in her mouth i thought he was gonna secretly do it to euthanize her but no this is all about her can you know to me at least the way i read it with the hospital buy that she was able to reach into her purse and pull out these pills and and pop them herself i did not see that coming i'm like what's all this exercise with the arm what's going on here why is this in here but it pays off and i i like the subtleness of that part i agree i like that and there's something else darabont added that was not in the original short story that i think adds so much emotion to the scene in the short story the mother is far more out of it and she takes the pills, but you're never sure as a reader, and Johnny's never sure how much the mother's really complicit in it. Here, with the performance, and this is the one time I'll give that woman real credit, is when he says he brought pills from home, and she just is very subtle, but in a little bit of a happy, you mean the pain could end, and the way she takes that bottle and puts her fingers around it so her son won't go to jail for this. The fact that they are in it together makes this a sweeter moment than in the book where it does feel like putting down your dog. For me, the line that really sticks out here at the end is she asks, are my legs together? That's what reminds me. No, at no other point am I thinking that she's paralyzed, but that's what reminds me how far gone she is, how little control she has, how in some ways... It's important that she gets these pills that, you know, not to become an advocate for euthanasia, but I do think that there is a moment to exit the stage. And I think that that line let me know that this was absolutely, without a question, the right thing to do. I was confused by that line. Was she afraid the doctor seen her cooch? Like, I, I didn't understand that line. Are my legs together? She can't see anymore and she can't feel anymore. And I do think she's thinking about how she's being presented. I mean, she's becoming more of a, a display object. The title is anonymous. She's just some woman in a room. And I do feel like that let me know. The way it read to me, I don't know how it impacts someone else, but the way it read to me is I'm not even aware of how my body looks anymore. At that point, yeah, I think then maybe, maybe you're out of your body. Maybe it's time to fully exit. And with that, let's exit the room and move on to the second Dollar Baby released as part of the Night Shift collection, The Boogeyman. Yeah, now this one, obviously, Frank Darabont had no involvement. This was not Oscar-nominated. I don't think they knew each other, except for the fact that when Stephen King became hot on video, they were both approached in 1986. I guess they're the head of the class. They were the ones that were considered commercially viable, and this was packaged on the same VHS cassette as Woman in the Room. Sometimes. Other times, this is considered Volume 2. They'd, they've re-released this so many times. But only on VHS. Yeah, just yes. VHS. But it was one short per VHS at times, and other times, they'd be double-billed on the same tape. It's worth pointing out, this one came first. Actually, both filmmakers asked for the rights for the, their stories they wanted to tell in 1980, but... Jeff Shiro got it done in two years, where it took Darabont three years. This was done by the end of 1982. 
if, if that extra year gave that much extra quality, Shiro should have slowed the hell down because there is quite, if you're saying these two are the head of the class, what a big step between valedictorian and salutatorian. <laughs> I call it class clown, but you know what? I'm ready for this. I, it, it's kind of sweet what Darabont did, but it was kind of hopey. It was kind of sappy. You know, he's mentioned that at this point he's a little embarrassed by it, and I get that. I'm ready for some horror. It's the early 80s. Give me something slasher. I'm actually very excited when this thing kicks off, and we got that. Now I'm getting like Carpenter score and the droning yeah, sense, yeah. and there's almost like a Cubist quality to the framing of all of these slanted doorways and stuff. I'm ready for it, guys. Let's do some Stephen King horror. Can somebody <laughs> explain that opening to me with the doorways? I don't know. I love that opening. I, You know, with the doorway, and it's just this long shot, someone coming in the doors at the boogeyman. Who is it? And then you get another long shot zooming in with Lester in the bathroom. I don't know. I Again, this is a totally different film than The Woman in the Room, but... I'm liking how it shot, at least in the opening up here. I'm in that music. Yes, this is the trashy one, but it's not the melodrama about killing your mom. But I'm yeah, I'm ready for it. So why don't you tell him what we're going to see? Lester Billings comes home one night to find his daughter dead in the bathtub. He moves her body to the bed, leading the police to suspect Lester may have killed his daughter, especially since Lester's baby son died of unexplained circumstances not long before. A couple weeks later, Lester feels guilty for the deaths of all three of his children, so he goes to see a psychiatrist to explain how the children died, saying there was the boogeyman in their closet, but Lester didn't believe them, and so the boogeyman killed the children one by one. Even Lester's third and last child, Lester put the boy out almost to bait the boogeyman, but Lester couldn't stop the death. The psychiatrist tries to calm Lester down and tells the man to make another appointment with his receptionist. Lester goes out to find the receptionist's desk empty, and when Lester goes back to the doctor, he finds the office empty, until he opens the closet door to discover his psychiatrist was the boogeyman all along, as credits roll to a strobe light effect. Yeah, and I, so if it wasn't clear from that plot synopsis, I want to stress, because for the longest time, I believe that there was a Stephen King involvement to the 1980 slasher movie, The Boogeyman. That is something very different, and who knows, maybe we'll do it someday. But that one about the slasher that lives in the mirror and comes out, The Boogeyman from 1980, not this story. And I should probably also clarify, because I went back and watched it, the Quantum Leap episode from season three, The Boogeyman... <laughs> Not based on this story. There is a lot of Stephen King connections in there, including Sam Beckett giving Stephen King the idea for many of his stories. But it has <laughs> nothing to do with this. Stephen King was portrayed in an episode of Quantum Leap? Indeed. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> there, again, and there's another one, too. There, 2005, there was something with one of the Seventh Heaven kids called the Boogeyman. Not this. <laughs> Not even Casey and the Sunshine Band, I'm your Boogeyman. Uh, <laughs> no connection. Or Rob Zombie. Yeah, right. None of that. This is, <laughs> yes, a very simple 12 pages. Came out in 1973. Again, you're straining to go more than 20 minutes with this material here. They would be hard-pressed to ever make a feature out of this boogeyman. But they could, Lawnmower Man. Oh, they could, and we may review it one day. But as of right now, this recording, this is the only version of this story we're going to cover. And this one is... More of an adaptation of King's work than the other. The original King story takes place completely in the psychiatrist's office. Here, we spend the first half of the film dealing with 
Lester and his wife and the dead daughter and the police interrogating Lester. And all of a sudden, I'm wishing for the subtle, nuanced acting of the woman in the room. Look, the, yeah, the acting here is much more broad, but I think this is a better mystery. That woman in the room, I knew that was about euthanasia from the beginning. Like, And we knew he would kill her. Yeah. I mean, right? Yeah, it, it, I agree. There's no mystery no. there. Here, okay, dead child in the tub, he's surprised, like, the wife is like, I told you not to move the body, the cops are showing him, there's this mystery, I'm like, why isn't this dude arrested right away? Well, like, oh, another child died too? Like, there's a lot of mystery going on in this one that's actually keeping my interest. I want to find out what the heck is going on. Yes, half of that mystery is bad storytelling, because I want to know what the fuck is going on. Wait, now there's three dead kids? Yeah, Arnie's right. Some of this is the intrigue of the story, and some of this is created by confusions, largely in the editing. It's trying to figure out what's going on and the compression of the timeline. In the Stephen King story, it took years between the children's murder. Here, it feels like, you know, a couple weeks. It's just hard to suppress... The idea that DCFS or somebody wouldn't come in here and take their children away. I mean, someone would not be allowed to keep having children murdered every week. <laughs> you would look into that harder than what these cops do. This It is also frustrating, too. I agree that it begins as a police procedural and ends in a shrink's office. Feels very schizophrenic that we don't get any resolution for what the cops are investigating. That That's largely forgotten midway through here. Uh, it is frustrating, but I, I will stick by Jacob in this much. I never am bored by this one. I always want to know what's going to happen at the end, even though, yes, this one is clearly less polished than Woman in the Room. And I'll agree that there is a mystery to this, because the thing I wondered, and I wondered it with both the short story and this movie. I wondered if the ending might be different in one than the other. Is Lester the killer, or is there a boogeyman? Is Lester personifying his own murderous traits as this third party? And let me just say, on the page, particularly put in context of the other Night Shift story, it's pretty clear to me that he is. Because there are so many stories in Night Shift about a character talking about something supernatural going on, and then you finding out at the very twist ending that they are the culprit of it. It's very Edgar Allan Poe. You know, I felt like the unreliable narrator that you would find in a lot of Poe stories. It feels like King is channeling that, and I, I like that. I like some of this confusion. When we clearly see the first child dead in the tub, and then the cops get there, and he says that he found him in the bed, and then we find out that the child that died before that, it was classified as a crib death, and yet there was something, some contusion on their neck. I like the fact that there's conflicting reports. I like the fact that, yes, there seems to be support for both believing it's this guy or a monster in the closet. I actually disagree with you, Stuart. I think that in that original story, based on the ending, I didn't get Poe. I got EC Comics and Tales from the Crypt, and I just think that the ending was the Doctor was the boogeyman all along in both. Not really a satisfying ending that we'll talk about, but I think that's King's prose adapted here. 
No, I think that the shrink, whenever you're ta- dealing with therapist, it's a way of having a dialogue with yourself, particularly that kind of therapist where you're lying on a couch and you're not looking at them and they're just jotting down notes and going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, tell me about your mother, and they're not offering commentary. I, the field has changed since that time, but back in the 70s, it's really just a way about working out your thoughts aloud to yourself with minimal involvement. I took it to mean that with the shrink being the monster, it was a way of him finally admitting what his inner thoughts were. I, t- I don't know. To me, I won't say it was 100% clear, but I left the story feeling like it definitely was him. He was the boogeyman. I, I do have a question. You know, we've talked so much about King putting himself in his stories, and I know he has at least one kid. Was he a father by this point? Because I, I see this film, you know, here's this father, you know, his kids are crying because there's this boogeyman. He's like annoyed by him. Shut up. Go to sleep. Maybe because I rewatched Racerhead recently, I, I get that real, like this almost despising a fatherhood in this film, which I feel is a theme in that as well, you know, where oh, I don't want to be a father. They're crying and keeping me up at night. And did he have kids at this point? Was this maybe, you know, I'm trying to write my novels here. Stop crying. You know, where's your mom? My guess is that this was written in the 72-73 period based upon the dates given in the short story, and that, yes, he was a father of two at that point and had a lot of that. And it's Shades of the Shining. I see this here. This is Jack Torrance's vestigial early self. The oldest kid is even named Denny, not to be confused with Danny. Yeah, I actually thought it was Danny in this movie. I'm like, wait, little Danny Torrance? But yeah, I mean, having this abusive father who a supernatural force may be making him kill his kids, I can see this as a spark of an idea that would grow into a much, much better story in The Shining. Yeah, it it feels exactly like that. And I like The Shining, so yeah, I'm totally fine with that being the case here. I am wondering, when is Jack Torrance going to know that he's possessed? Because that's what I'm presuming they're leading to here. Once we get to the shrink's office, I know the cop's never going to break him, but once we get to the shrink's office, I really do think the film will have to literalize what I thought the story was telling me. And it does not. I gotta say, the second half, it does feel inconclusive as to what we're supposed to think the monster represents or who it really is. I will say, Stuart, you might be onto something with that shrink just being another version of Lester. Lester talking to himself. Because once we get to the shrink, and you've mentioned it, Arnie, I, I do get confused. I don't know what the timeline here is here. We're going mm-hmm. to flashbacks. It does feel like a fever dream. Like, he is like trying to play this all out in his head and maybe this actually isn't all happening in the shrink's office because it is just it turns so crazy at this point well it's weird because they cut away and you see the cop still investigating talking to the coroner about the last murders and then when we get back to the shrink's office we realize there's been another one on top of that that little andy the three-year-old has also bitten it at this point And another change here, though, is that in this short film, Lester is going to the shrink so that the shrink can help convince the cops he is innocent. Yes. In the book, he doesn't really give a shit. He'd be happy to go to prison because prison has no closets. So it may be that he suffers under a delusion 
in the story that that the boogeyman is self-created whereas here there may be a literal boogeyman that, that's clearly the way it plays out because that's what we see as we get to the end here there's the child's death and he defends him by uh, with a vacuum cleaner attachment yes. <laughs> I, I i i have no faith in this father i will say as bad as an actor as he is he is horrific looking he does look like a character out of a tim burton or something with the bald head those tidy yellows gotta go <laughs> Yeah, the tidy whities and the well, they're not whities. They're no, they're the yellow. tidy yellowies. Yes, yes, they're pre-piece colored. Yeah, the the rat face. Everything about this guy from the moment he enters the screen, he's got character capital C all over him, and I I give him a pass for all of the histrionics that he goes into. Bad actor, sure, but I think he works in this part. He certainly is suspicious. I certainly wonder if he isn't the killer when all of this is happening, but he's going to protect little Andy with the vacuum cleaner until he gets scared, runs away, and leaves him in the crib, presumably to die. He becomes a child and ends up sobbing to the therapist like he's the child that's afraid of the monster in the closet. Yeah, this overacting is really the most horrific thing in the entire short movie. I actually think Fire Breathing Devil is the most horrific thing. That song, did you catch that? It's a brief moment where he's listening to Top 40 and supposedly we're, we're to believe this chirpy song about there's a God up in heaven and a fire breathing devil in hell would be top of the charts. <laughs> But then we do get to that ending, and however you want to interpret the short story, in this one it's clear the shrink is the boogeyman, and they have no money. But they do have a Spencer gift strobe light. Hey, don't knock this ending. I thought it worked for a jump scare. I thought it was a better jump scare than the woman in the room's hug in the elevator. Yeah, again, this this is a student film. When your protagonist is using a vacuum cleaner attachment as a weapon, you obviously don't have a big budget. You know, again, I'm viewing it through those eyes. It's It works for me. It, it was fun. The thing that kills me is there needed to be something to set up the shrink as possibly having some knowledge or being somehow aware of these things or imply that he had been around have something that makes lester go to this shrink rather than lester just picks a shrink out of the phone book and oops it's the one who killed his kids yeah if i could do my own rewriting here what i would suggest is to keep the perspective of the story in the filmmaking it was a first person story and so you let's keep it about lester let's have it maybe we never see the therapist because we're only seeing what Lester does and he's on that couch. He's there talking and we don't get a really good look at this guy until the end. I think that that would have helped. Understanding his perspective would have made me more invested in the outcome here. As it is, it just kind of comes off as a cheap shot. Yeah, I just took, and again, there's no motivation for this, what I'm going to say, but I took it as the boogeyman for whatever reason. I don't know why they could have explained it. it. It seems like he was tormenting Lester. He's going after him for whatever reason. Maybe because he's a crappy dad. Maybe he doesn't like the color of his tidy yellowies. But for whatever reason, I just felt like the boogeyman was tormenting him. Maybe it was something when he was a child. Again, this would have been something useful to put in for why it was the psychiatrist or why the boogeyman would have taken the shape of this psychiatrist. Yeah, he takes responsibility. It's worth pointing out. Lester says, I killed my kids even though I didn't physically do it. I'm responsible for it because I moved them before they were ready. Basically, he 
because he was irritated, because he didn't want to be loving and giving, he pushed them out of the bedroom and into their own room, and that led to their own demise. Yeah, if you had this therapist slash boogeyman here say at the end that this is what I stalk, bad parents that won't let their children be children, that would have gone a long way to making the ending feel like more than just a jump scare. But it wouldn't have been King's story. And speaking of King's story, that takes us to the third one, The Disciples of the Crow, based on... The Children of the Corn. And we really had a discussion. Do we do this one now or do we do this one in the fall when we harvest all these corn films? Yeah, Children of the Corn is going to be our finale to all of the Night Shift. It's the biggest one. It's one of the biggest horror franchises we've ever done. Nine installments. Ten, if you count this Disciples of the Crow or Night of the Crow or whatever you call this thing. I think since we're talking about Dollar Babies, it makes more sense to include it here. Although it was never included on the same VHS as Boogeyman and Woman in the Room. It was a volume two that was put out on some imprint. And what's really funny about this volume two is it came out on the same VHS tape as another short student film called The Night Waiter. And it says in huge letters at the top, Stephen King's Disciples of the Crow, The Night Waiter. And it's like Stephen King volume two. It never tells you anywhere that the night waiter has absolutely nothing to do with Stephen King. It was just somebody piggybacking on to the Disciples of the Crow release. Yeah, it's set in like a haunted hotel, so it's kind of like The Shining. You might get confused. They're counting on you getting confused and thinking that, yes, uh, this is a Stephen King story. But not only is it not something that Stephen King wrote, it, it definitely wasn't included in the Night Shift volume. So putting it out as Night Shift Volume 2 is disingenuous, to say the least. But, hey, that was the early days of VHS. You could get away with that kind of thing, I guess. I can't believe that this, or really any of these projects, were put out for commercial rental. I I just can't believe that someone thought that they were of a quality that people wouldn't object when they took it home and watched it for a dollar. Hey, this was the 80s. We were paying four dollars. <laughs> and another three if you didn't rewind that tape. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, God forbid you to return it late. My thinking is, keep in mind, this was mid to late 80s. Anything with Stephen King's name on it was like printing money and Hey, I rented it. It was in a video store. I put out my $3. I did rewind it, so I didn't have to pay 6 Really? I, I never even saw the box for this one. This was never an option for me, but I would have steered clear. I No, this, I, I'd never really heard of this one until we, we were doing our Dollar Baby research and realized that, hey, I guess we should throw this in with the other two. It, like Women in the Room, came out in 1983. I'm not exactly sure how or what festival or, or even how it was received. Is anything known about what Stephen King thought of this or how it was put out commercially? Very little information was able to be dug up. All I can tell you is, of all of his dollar babies ever, the woman in the room is his favorite. And it's why he sold the Shawshank Redemptions really cheap so long later. And the rest, varying quality is all he'll say. And he hasn't really spoken on the record about Disciples of the Crow. He was busy during this time working on Creepshow, Cat's Eye, and other more real films. Well, what's telling about this, what makes it interesting for me is... Disciples of the Crow is only a year away from the feature film adaptation of Children of the Corn. Same source material, but one would be actually be a commercially released feature film. And 
I'm wondering, is that the reason why we've never seen another dollar baby called Children of the Corn? Is that the reason why this is called Disciples of the Crow and not by its actual given short story name? I don't think so. I think it comes down to when Stephen King sells you a dollar baby, he's granting you the non-exclusive rights. When he sells to a studio, they're getting the exclusive rights. And so, yeah, you're probably right on that guess. But again, this is official insofar as they gave Stephen King a George Washington to make it. And that is the extent, which is why there's very little information about this anywhere beyond being able to find it on YouTube. It's actually really hard to find. It was released, you marvel at VHS, but for some reason, in France, this got a DVD release. <laughs> and some Stephen King fanatic, one who I feel I pale in comparison to. I've done, what, almost five hours of reviews on his books, not counting the movies? And I feel this person who ripped the DVD and then took the English audio of the VHS and matched it up is a far bigger fan than I shall ever be. <laughs> yeah, it, I didn't know what the non-sync sound was. I didn't know whether that was poor production values or just a glitch with the YouTube. But yeah, I had to go to YouTube to watch this, I guess, like all of us. I bought the VHS tape for $7 on Amazon. <laughs> of course. Mm, proud owner. All right, that means you get the rights to do the plot. In Jonah, Oklahoma in 1971, a group of children are fed up with their parents' fornicating ways. So late one night, they commit mass homicide, leaving only the children there to worship the corn and the crow. Twelve years later, arguing couple Vicky and Bert are driving through when they hit a teenage boy on the highway. They find he had been stabbed with a knife made of a corn cob and a crow's head <laughs> carved at the top. It, it, there was a metal blade. It wasn't like... <laughs> he wasn't shivved with an ear of corn in him. <laughs> yeah. How far can you run with that sticking in your back? I just gotta know. Investigating the town of Jonah, it seems abandoned until the violent teens rush out and attack the couple. They barely escape, Vicky having to stab one of the boys hanging onto their car. They start to drive away, not noticing their engine overheating from the damaged radiator as credits roll. That is the extent of my automotive knowledge, <laughs> is it was the radiator causing an overheat. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get there when we get there. But uh, first of all, I just want to address this prologue here, because it's not in the story at all. We didn't see the fateful day that the children took over when we read the short story. They've invented it for this little story. Are we to expect that the leader is this Billy kid? Did he get the job because he's the mole that makes him the prophet? <laughs> You know, I have a hard time understanding why they got this cult going on. Maybe in those nine Children of the Corn films, I'll finally get those answers. Oh, yes. <laughs> it does <laughs> seem weird. I, I get it that this, again, this is a short film, but it's just like, oh, we're kids. We're going to worship, I don't know, crows and corn and kill our parents. It seems very sudden to me that this kid with the mole all of a sudden has a cult going at nine years old. Very ambitious of him, I guess. This looks like a sleepover at Arnie's house, actually. Oh, no. <laughs> Look at this. I think we had several plots like this. Maybe not as violent, but I could I could have seen us doing some witchcraft with putting corn kernels in a cauldron and trying to cast a spell on your mother, Arnie. I think we could have done it. I think I had a Ouija board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? When I read the story, to me, I mean, you haven't done a books on nachos on that. That's going to come out when we do the real nine Children of the Corn movies. But my take on it was that this was Stephen King processing the cult movement that was happening in the 70s at the time. You know, when you had Jim Jones or 
Manson or something. You had all these flower children that were rejecting traditional religion and coming up with their own. The way I take it anyway, this was King taking a look at that with a critical eye. And I kind of took it as just there's a repeated theme in King's fiction. It started with Carrie, with Margaret White, the religious fanatic who takes certain verses of the Bible too literally. And if you read the short story, and I will do a full book Sinatra's on it, but I mean, they are specifically Old Testament worshiping. They pick and choose. So I took it more as just a statement on any religion, which King was far more against back in the 70s than he is now. Yeah, fundamentalism. I guess I'd have to go back to my Bible in the Old Testament. I don't remember a lot of crow worshiping there. Again, not having read these stories, not having seen those nine films, this seems very student to me. The, the way it's just like, we're going to kick this off. We're going to have some kids. They're going to kill their parents because that's cool. It's exciting, I guess. There's just not a lot of explanation, not enough for me to really be invested what's going on in this town. I'd almost wish it would start with these two people driving into the town and, and they discover what was going on. This whole prologue, it, it just causes more questions that we're not going to get answers for. And that's exactly how the short story starts. It starts with those two bickering couple on the road. The thing is, it's found out through nonverbal means. Bert deduces what happened in the town. Here, they show it, and I'm going to disagree. I think that this murder bit is some of the most effective visuals of this entire short. If you cut this in half, as YouTube did, I did see it there first, the first half is the children's uprising, and I think there they did some great stuff where they're looking at a stained glass of Jesus and it superimposes a skull. You get this good eye acting among these children. I get with the boyfriend and girlfriend in church that those people are not considered moral and so the children are rising up yes jacob you make a very good point they're ambitious they <laughs> took sunday school and did the extra credit but <laughs> well i mean billy's mom is stepping out there's this man with a mustache who's fingering the skirt line of her dress while they're in church but I mean, are they all sinners? I, I couldn't even extract that much. I get the sense that everyone said, you're our leader. You're the one that can speak with crows, and you're the one that can do all the corn art. And has a big mole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the mole gets you the job, I think. But whatever. He's the one that has the vision of the stained glass Christ skeleton or whatever, which later becomes the new scarecrow in town. I, I get the sense that Billy is the crazy one, and all the other ones just go along with it because, well... They wish they had a mole. I don't know. It didn't work that way for me in school, but may I think that's how it works here in Jonah, Oklahoma. The problem is, I think, with starting it this way, is it puts the emphasis on the religion, disciples of the crow. It makes you ask the question, why are they doing this? What is the meaning behind these rituals? These are questions that are not rewarded for being asked. I think that, yes, if we just started in the car and learned slowly what was going on, it would be scarier, it would be shorter, and it wouldn't underline how kind of ridiculous this religion is. And I want to state that the short story and the 1984 film both give that answer. I'm not going to spoil it just in case anybody hasn't seen it. But please don't. Yeah, I want Jacob to be surprised when we get to October, but it does give that answer that this movie lacks. But for what it is, psychotic children, they're killing the elders. I'm going with it. I'm liking the scenes. And then we get to Bert and Vicky. 
They were pretty heinous on the page. I got to say that these are two people that you do not like from the get-go. They start in the middle of a fight. You don't really want them to survive, per se. I mean, we have nothing invested in seeing them get out of this town. They're really two very annoying characters. And that's true here of the film as well. They've kept it true in that sense. Yeah, the dialogue is almost direct. A number of the fights, some of the most cutting lines, those are kings. But these two actors... Hey, I don't like them, so it's working. <laughs> yeah. It's been a long time. I actually hadn't reread the short story, Children of the Corn, in many years, and I reread it after watching this, so I was actually a little shocked when they hit a kid on the road. I also haven't seen the movie in a long time. I Maybe they will in October or not. I can't remember. Yeah, I had read the story before I saw this, and uh, so I had anticipated it. I didn't know how closely this was going to follow the story, and the truth is, it Follows pretty closely for the first half, and then it just feels like they didn't have the money or the desire to film the rest of it. So there's been a passage of time here, right? Because they hit this kid, but he really looks more like a teenager. When we see Billy, I, I think he's older again. It might be the YouTube haze <laughs> over this video or just the bad filming and storytelling. But it does seem like years have passed now. It's definitely a different actor playing Billy. It's the director himself. Ooh, an actor-director, a double, <laughs> triple threat. He also did the writing. <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood, look out. Oh, wait, 20 years have passed and we've not seen this guy again. <laughs> they did look out. They took the warning. <laughs> but yeah, let's face it. The mole was there just so that you would understand that this young man is the same character as the boy in church that was the ringleader of the gang. Otherwise, I really don't know that we would make the connection. There is a purpose to that mole and that is what it is. <laughs> you know, one thing I will give this... If you're going for, uh, obviously, horror, adapting a King story, I do like, you know, we saw it at the beginning when they're murdering their parents, have these, like, corn on the cob trowels that they're hitting them with. Now this kid, they find, they hit this kid and they find a knife that has, like, this corn on the cob handle. I, again, I don't know why they're so devoted to corn and crows, <laughs> but I do like the aesthetic. It is creepy. It is cultish. Yeah, the carving, I'm going to give them some serious props to their Prop to I'm going to give props to the props. <laughs> Why don't you just give them an ear of corn? That's what they want. <laughs> I think that'll be their statuette, the golden corn. But that knife that the woman is rubbing around her lips? <laughs> yeah, that scene. I'm sorry, but you play your games, I'll play mine. What is this game? Let's get a disease? <laughs> that is a murder weapon with blood on it, and she's, like, kissing it. Almost fellatiating the... <laughs> crow head <laughs> oh dear but yes go on yes you like the knife i like the knife that's all i'm saying <laughs> i mean it's a cool knife i couldn't carve that knife no no i agree admittedly it's probably taken from a head shop and then shoved on a corn cob <laughs> you do what you have to on these low budgets i'm gonna give them props for clearing out this town i don't know where they got this location whether these are a sector decorators work or they actually found a ghost town and said let's set up shop here but it's believable that jonah has not been touched by adults in over a decade. I believe it. When they roll into town and we see the boarded up places, they convince me. It's spooky. I actually think the location is great. Yeah, you know, the, again, the, there's so much of the look of this film that I like and little instances, you know, we have this girl who I guess, again, is a teenager by this point, one of the disciples of the crow, and she has, I don't know, what what are those birds called that you tilt and they have like the water in them? So th It's a drinking bird, yeah. Drinking like bird, yeah. yeah. She like 
does some kind of ritual with that. Again, I don't know what she's doing, but it's goofy, but it also is kind of eerie at the same time. Whenever you take children's toys and reframe it in a, in a horror setting, you know, that's always eerie and... So again, there, there are moments. Yes, this abandoned town and, and, and some of the look of it is good. It's just, wow, nothing happens. Like for a short film, there's a lot of time just like walking around in empty rooms. Well, we're building to something. I mean, yes, exactly. Again, I go back to what is this offering that this little girl has left? It looks like it's a beer stein of blood and this dipping bird is dipping into it. There's, there's corn everywhere. It's what the, the scarecrow has been changed out for a skeleton. It's a slow build. It makes you, want to know what are we leading to that we go back to the church uh, that's where all the answers have to come but i still am in the dark when he's pulling <laughs> out the bible and looking at that mural i am gonna side with jacob i'm with them in the car i'm with them when they hit the boy when they're going through the diner and all of that though these two they're okay actors you know for a low budget film they both worked again they're working to this day i see them playing bit parts in television even as of last year wow that is not what i would have expected but i think that their investigation just doesn't carry the atmosphere with it that it should have i mean it's only a 15 to 20 minute film and i find myself growing just a little bit bored until they finally do get to the church what, you're having pacing problems with the 20-minute movie? I can't wait <laughs> yes! till we get the feature film version of this. Wow. How are they going to drag it out then? I believe it's a problem in that one, too, with memory serves. But I, I didn't have a problem with the, with the pace of it. I like a slower build. I like slow-building horror. But it does put the pressure on you to deliver a killer ending. And, well... They have to. I'm really impressed with the way they whack the hell out of that car. Yeah, you know what? I will give the film this. They know how to beat up a car. That director <laughs> can film that well. You know, Stuart, you're always talking about 70s grit. Like, yeah. yes, this film has grit all over it. I'm liking, I'm actually kind of scared when they're attacking that car. It feels very primal. I'm scared, too, because it really looks like the actress is in the car, and I know that there's no safety manager on a low-budget film like this. I'm really scared for her as they're sledgehammering the safety glass. However I feel about the film, Green Arrow to the man committed enough to do that stunt where she's driving and he's half hanging out of the car. Yeah, that is this is some dangerous stuff here. And yeah, one false move and it could have been ended in tragedy. You don't think that was a mannequin from a clothing store that's what i thought was being dragged oh well maybe but let me put it this way i bought the mannequin in the moment i believe that all of these things that were happening were real practical things being destroyed here i thought that was a real obviously a you know they replaced the glass but i believed that yeah this attack was real and and bought into it yeah i did too though i mean i only thought about the mannequin after the fact because i was wondering how in the heck they pulled that off and no, I think that that is a really brutal attack. Very effective, all things considered. I also thought for sure she was going to leave Bert because Vicky yeah. drives off. Bert has taken her keys because she was being a bitch and threatened to leave him. When they're being attacked, he tosses the keys to her. She gets him through the smashed window. She drives off and Bert's running after the car. She keeps driving. I'm like, wow, that is one cold woman. You had an <laughs> argument. Yes, things aren't going so good in your relationship. Leave him to die at the hand of the corn kids. <laughs> Yeah, that's one way to get a divorce, I guess. But no, this is a very surprise ending. Having just come off the story fresh, 
I didn't necessarily think they were going to do it exactly like the book, but I honestly didn't believe they both would get away with their lives. I mean, even if this corn cob shank does, you know, make the car break down at some point, they've gotten away. Those kids can't drive. Even if they have their learning permit, they need an adult in the car to drive with them. They're not going to catch up. <laughs> I did like, though, you get that final shot of the crows all flying towards that car. I don't know if that was stock footage they found. I don't know how on this budget they would have set up a shot like that, but... That seems like the horror ending. Oh, you thought you got away, but now the disciple. Maybe they these kids turn into crows. I don't know. Maybe that's what that ritual is. I don't know what this cult is about, but that seemed like an appropriate horror ending, having the crows all fly towards that car. Is that what they were doing? It was it's animation. Well done. I mean, it's it's credible. But again, watching this on YouTube, it's hard to tell what's what. <laughs> yeah, they're an, it's animation. It could be dirt on the lens, but I believe it was actually drawn on there. And yeah, I I didn't think the crows were going to attack. I just thought that. Uh, it was just a way of reminding you what this town stood for. I'm with Stuart. I just thought it was crows because we're watching Disciple of the Crow. I never thought they were going after the car. No. To me, it felt like even if that car broke down, they are several, several miles outside of Jonah. And I just don't see the kids ever catching up to them. They've, they've lived. And I wouldn't have anticipated that. So with that. We're going to do our recommends as a group, since these were all put out under the Night Shift Collection VHS series title. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend the Night Shift Collection, Jacob? So we're going to give this an overall recommend, but I'm going to just run through these three films. These are student films. I'm going to give them a grade and figure it out from that grade. What, what, what is the class curve, I guess? You know, The Women in the Room, I, I think that shows the most potential. I, I think I said in my review when we are talking about that, yeah, that director gets an A. That one shows someone that's thinking about shots and storytelling and, and all those different aspects. There's someone that I see promising, and a lot of people did because he's going to direct some big films that we're going to review later on. Boogeyman, I I like that one. It, it was crazy. It was weird. I give that one a you know a B B minus. I, I again that storytelling needed some tightening up at the end there. It got confusing, but as as just this crazy fever feeling of this father going crazy, I thought that was effective. Disciples of the Crow, the, the this student, I, I got to give this one a, a C, C minus. You know, I, again, some effective shots that that scene attacking the car is great. You know, some of the aesthetics of this cult were neat, but the overall storytelling is a mess. I couldn't get into it. It yeah, for a 15 20 minute movie, it seemed to lag an awful lot. But overall, you know, an A and a B and a, and a low C, uh, to me, that's a recommend. I, I'm grading these as, again, student films. That's what my recommend is. And uh, The other way I'd think about this, if this was a TV show, a Twilight Zone type thing, you know, based on these three, yeah, I would come back for a fourth week. So, yeah, Green Arrow for me. Stuart. Honestly, I don't think any of them are that great. I mean, even in Woman in the Room, if this is the best of the dollar babies, well, none of them are that great then. I, I think that, you know, it's a little corny, but I'm not going to grade it by the scales that I would normally a, a polished professional. These are student films, and I was a TA in film school. I have graded student films. I'm very much in line with your grading, Jacob. I do feel like A, A minus. The other two, I'd give a B minus, C plus two. And that's a passing grade. I think overall, if you have the mindset to be patient and patronize student filmmaking, uh, yeah, these are all have something to offer and a green arrow for all of them. But 
No, in, in the scale of things, I, I think that if you like your movies more polished, if you only like to watch, you know, professional filmmaking, uh, then maybe you could skip these. They're, they're not essential, but they're kind of fun. And in some ways, they're the only ways to see some of these Stephen King stories on film. So you've really confused the hell out of me. Is that a recommend? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, I, yeah, let me be clear. Yeah, for, I don't think that they're great, but I think that we can recommend them as student films if you want to watch student films. If you don't want to watch student films, these are not shining examples that go above and beyond what you'll see at any college film school. And I don't want to watch student films. I really don't. I've seen a few when I was a student and kind of got my fill of them at that time. But I am the kind of person who enjoys local theater from time to time. I know that, Stuart, when you lived in Chicago, we'd see some local productions that weren't major in any way, and I kind of enjoy the homespun feel to a startup, even if not necessarily a student production. And so with these, looking at them as somebody who does want to see professional films, the question I have is, am I entertained? Is this a good adaptation of the story? And looking at the three, The Woman in the Room... I thought was really well done. It moved me. It had a verisimilitude that couldn't be denied. And I liked Darabont's edition of the prison scene. I think it really fleshed out a little bit more of the dilemma. I liked his choice of music. Overall, thought it was really well done. And yeah, if it was a half an hour short on HBO or one of those anthology series, I would have thought it was a good episode. The Boogeyman... No, that one, if we were doing them individually, would get a red arrow from me. The overacting, I mean, the story itself has some questionable parts to it, but when you try to adapt it in this way and making the changes they made and bringing the actors they brought, eh, just, it, it was a piece that, even at its short length, was straining my patience. And then you get to Disciples of the Crow, again, it had some pacing problems, even at its short length, but... I liked its action scenes. I liked the murders in the beginning. I liked the car smash at the end. So if I would give that a green arrow. So two greens and one red, I'll give the series a green. So that's three for three, which is unexpected. I know this is going to be a long series. We've got, what, nine Children of the Corn films. We've got Mangler series coming up. Hell, in this one alone, we've got a couple more that... May or may not be so good. Drew Barrymore on her downslide and Graveyard Shift, which I remember from watching so long ago. So I'm glad we're starting out on a positive note, even if it is a $3 positive note. <laughs> what you're saying is these movies are raw and unprofessional, but they might be the best that Night Shift ever does. <laughs> and I agree with you. I'm very concerned, too, about the 21 additional Night Shift podcasts we have to go to. So yes, I agree. I think maybe that's why I give it a green arrow. It's you just want to start off somewhere and and hope that it can maintain this level. But we'll see. I don't know. I definitely saw the next movie we're reviewing, Cat's Eye. It's three more Stephen King short stories packaged together as one film with Drew Barrymore and a cat battling for the star power. <laughs> I wonder if it'll maintain. I saw it a lot when I was a kid, and, and I I did enjoy it, but it has been decades since I have returned to Cat's Eye. Well, we will do that next week, and if you're listening, be sure to join me over at booksandnachos.com, where I am reviewing all of these short stories. Disciples of the Crow will wait till the fall, but 
The two from Cat's Eye, Quitters Incorporated, and The Ledge are being reviewed right now. You'll hear a new Stephen King review every week at booksandnachos.com. And be sure to check our archives at nowplayingpodcast.com, where you can hear our other Stephen King reviews. We started with Carrie, then Salem's Lot, The Shining, and now Into Night Shift. All of those reviews at nowplayingpodcast.com. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Thanks. And until next week, we'll see you on the night shift. Show's over. Everybody go back to doing what you were doing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. It's more fun than human beings should be allowed to have or what? Come to the Now Playing Podcast website to hear our reviews of other Stephen King films, such as Carrie, The Shining, and Salem's Lot. Hey, boys. Come on over here. And keep coming back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new review in our Stephen King retrospective series. We have a great deal to talk about, Mr. Billings. Come back tomorrow and we'll talk some more. At our sister podcast, BooksAndNachos.com, you can hear Arnie's reviews of the original books and short stories on which these films are based. College Boy. Also in the archives, you can hear reviews of other films, including A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Star Trek, The Avengers, Halloween, Terminator, and more. Hear hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. How could this thing go on all these years? <laughs> How didn't somebody know about it? Unless that God they worship approved. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Go on, Dickie, before you lose your guts. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I watched your work, and I like your style. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. We've got a hell of a problem, but we here have developed a hell of a solution. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Want another one? Yes. Please. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Good morning, boys and girls. Did we all remember to bring our homework assignments today? A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. We didn't? Well, we know what happens to little boys and girls who don't do their homework. Now Playing's Stephen King retrospective series is edited by Dylan and Arnie. Gonna be a mess. No doubt about it. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Bravo! Now we can get you that audition on Star Search! The film discussed in this podcast is the property of the original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. You think it's going to make a difference? No, but it may make the judge happy. Now playing podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. Take it from me. There's only one way to deal with their kind. On their own terms. 
The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. When you've been in the business as long as I have, you get to know every line. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I think I'll sleep now, Johnny. You do that. The Boogeyman, starring Michael Reed and Burt Linder, directed by Jeffrey C. Shiro. It doesn't matter. No one knows who he is. <laughs> I got Darabont right. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> the, the only, only one that people really that matters. Know. Yeah, pretty much. The reason why we're doing it. And The Night of the Crow, starring Elise Lester. Wait, what? No. Disciple. Yeah. Disciple. It, believe it or not, on the VHS fucking cover, it says, yeah, but you're right, it's Disciple. The but, credits say Disciple, yeah. Yeah, but the VHS cover said Night. Oh. <laughs> Even though it all takes <laughs> A lot of care in went into that packaging. <laughs> yeah. Some shit about a crow. <laughs> and the Disciple of... <laughs> Some shit about a crow. <laughs> Give us two bucks and you can rent this 20 minutes. <laughs> And it has something else you don't want to see on the same tape. <laughs> yeah. The Stephen King Collection, <laughs> Volume 2, featuring one story not by Stephen King. <laughs> A lot of care went into the release of these movies. And here he goes to a prison to talk to an ex-Vietnam vet turned professional hitman. Who's uh, I, I think it could just be a Vietnam vet. Do you become an ex-vet somehow? <laughs> Take two. I, I I could just see a listener jumping on you for that, so I'm looking out for you, Arnie. Why not? They jump on me for everything else. <laughs> Where it does feel like putting down your dead dog. Let me change that because dog wouldn't be dead if you're putting him down. Then putting down your dog. Hold on, I hear some police sirens, but I think woot, they're going. Woot, that's the sound of the police. Yeah, pretty much. It's the sound of Venice Beach. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, but mostly on the weekends. Honestly, reminds me of Johnny Dangerously. If you've seen that film, there's a scene where a bunch of the gangsters are outside a club and they're nodding at each other like the plot's about to go down and it just they never stop nodding. And But how does it relate to real genius? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> Other than okay. it's about a bunch of kids. I'm telling you, those two movies, Johnny Dangerously and Real Genius, you find a way to work them in every fifth podcast. <laughs> <laughs> because I know we'll never review them, so I will just bring them up every chance I fucking get. Actually, I don't even realize I'm bringing them up that much. That is how much a part of my film history they are. I think we lost Jacob, both yep. physically yep. and in conversation. Yep, I see that. That is true. We could imitate him. I'm sure he's hating it. I could just... Okay, okay. there he is. All right. <laughs> Red Children of the Crow in many years. I reread it. <laughs> <Get> rename. 